And what you need to do is say, what did I do then that I can write about now? Mm-hmm. What experiences did I have, both good and bad? Yeah. And how can I bring them to my work so that when people pick it up, they, it, it's, it's in the mouth, it's in the taste. You know, you can, you can actually feel it. And it's not just, I'm the monster came out of the woods and he grabbed him by the leg and pulled it off. You know, <laughs> you don't want that. Yeah. <laughs> Unless it's a joke. Welcome. You're listening to Paleo Cheese Podcast, Episode 11, Part 2, with special guest Joe R. Lansdale, discussing Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Joe picked uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, one of his favorite movies. I had seen it before. Uh, Jeremiah had not. It's, uh, it's based loosely on fact. Uh, the film tells the story of Wild West outlaws Butch Cassidy and his partner Sundance Kid who are on the run from a U.S. posse after a string of train robberies. Uh, it's directed by George Roy Hill, who also directed The Sting and The World According to Garp, Slapshot. I remember that seeing that as a kid. And Funny Farm, it stars Paul Newman and Robert Redford and Catherine Ross. And it was written by William Goldman, who uh, I love that guy, man. He's written some, I just read Magic a couple months ago. And I, oh, uh, yeah, I think it's great. Temple of Gold was probably my first coming of age book I ever read. I like, I love that um, book too. Yeah. yeah, that was my dad's like one of his all time favorites and, and one of the first books I, when I finally started well, reading yeah. books, that was one of the great first novels. Books I read. It's fantastic. For your turn to curtsy, my turn to bow that he wrote. Also, it's I, a I have it. Novel. I have it. I have pretty much all his stuff, but I haven't read it. But uh, yeah, so 1969 mm-hmm. came out and. Jeremiah, what, uh, I mean, you enjoyed it. Yes, man. I was actually bummed that I I hadn't seen it already. Like, I knew about it. I'd seen the iconic picture. I mean, it's so iconic. The freeze frame at the end that became the image. In fact, maybe the the greatest freeze frame of all time. You know, but yeah, I I was amazed I hadn't watched it because as I said to Joe earlier, I grew up on that stuff, man. My dad was a Nick and Knight guy. You know, I mean, that's, he still is. He watches uh, Andy Griffith every night when he goes to sleep. He lives out in Palm Springs. And he has, he owns a, a tour company called Celebrity Tours. And the whole point is to bring people out to see Elvis's home and, you know, old Blue Eyes and, you know, Bob Hope. And so, he, you know, he's got up Marilyn Monroe. They've got all that stuff and tells all this story. So he lives. I mean, it's like his life. And, uh, and yet this movie somehow slipped through the cracks. And so when, when you mentioned that Joe wanted to watch this. I was so, man, Joe, I got to, I ain't even going to lie. I was so happy. Plus, we had just talked, Chad. We just talked about how, you know, because we try to mix in a bunch of different styles of movies. And I had mentioned Western, you know, and that's kind of, you know, we're like, well, we'd have to really think of what Western we want to do. You know, there's some that we were thinking about. So when you brought it up, I said, yes, <laughs> like definitely 100%. But I, I loved it from the get go. I mean, from the sepia tone, quiet beginning, you know, oh man. If you read the screenplay, it's all there. It's one of those screenplays that they just stuck it in the camera and you don't usually see that. And, and in fact, the things that they did leave out were just marvelous, but they just had so much of it. But it is, it's the most incredible screenplay I ever read. And I had never read a screenplay before I wrote my first screenplay, optioned it 11 times eventually and sold it. I'd never seen one. I just made one up. They said, can you write a screenplay? Yeah, I can do that. And so uh, I did it. And then later when I saw Goldman's, it was similar in our approach 
because both of us came from being novelists and short story writers. So we kind of had the same mindset mm -hmm. when we put it together, you know. And but that what people don't realize that are younger is that that changed the course of not only films but westerns, but films in general. Because nobody had ever seen a western where the guys ran. They're after them and they they're after yeah. this. I'm yeah. not doing that. Let's go. Let's get on the horse and go. And you know who are those guys? Yeah. And uh, so it was different than um, so many westerns because you know I, John Wayne don't run, but Butch and Sundance they did. And yet that's fairly historical. And the other thing that was wonderful about Goldman is that he, he knows how to write a scene that's unexpected or seems like it's going to be something else and then it isn't. And he knows how to write dialogue that is both poignant and humorous at the same time. And to me, I had never seen anything like that when I saw it. Now you see a lot of other things now that are influenced by it, either directly or indirectly, but that's what you got to understand is that when that came out, there was nothing like it. And the original uh, reviews weren't good. It was after a little bit that had been around that people began to go, oh, wait a minute, the audiences are loving this. And then other people evaluated it, some reevaluated it, and it has become since that time a Western classic and my third favorite film of all time. It's funny that you mentioned that about not running. Um, I guess when William Goldman, when he first wrote the script and sent it out for consideration, there was one studio, the only studio that was interested in it, but they said under one condition um, that they couldn't flee to South America. <laughs> and Goldman, Goldman protested and he said, well, that's what happened. And the studio said, quote, I don't give a shit. <laughs> so they said, yeah. all I know is John Wayne don't run away. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. Gold, Goldman rewrote the script, but he didn't change. He just changed a couple little things, a few pages. Right. He, and right. He had a way of, of, of doing that that was interesting. And I learned a lot from uh, reading uh, things that he said about film later when I was doing it. A lot of times when you go in for film, they, they really have, they sometimes haven't even read the script, but they'll pretend to. Or if they have read the script, they don't know shit from Wild Honey most of the time. Mm -hmm. And they'll say something like, um, William needs more character. And what Goldman would do is he'd get a pad and he'd go, what, what do you, tell me exactly what you want. More character. It needs that. More of this. In other words, it was nothing. It was just these sort of, you know, general things that they would suggest. And he would go home and write it the way he wanted to write it or make a few changes. And they never noticed because most of the time they don't even remember what they said. It's like he wrote a book called Which Lie Did I Tell? Which is very much dealing with a lot. And all of them are that way. I've dealt with some great producers and directors and stuff, but it is a lot like that. And I've dealt with people like that and I just don't want to do it. I'm not going to do it. That reminds me very much of, a, of David Lee Roth when he was touring with Van Halen and they were one of the first bands to have like a big light show with a, a big stage and everything. And it was very dangerous. So in their writer, they asked for M&Ms but for like, I think just blue or brown M&Ms. Yeah. And so I read, um, David Lee Roth's uh, autobiography, Crazy from the Heat, and he explains it in there. Over over the years, there was just this urban legend that, oh, these guys are so picky. Well, the dude is smart. And the reason why he did that is because he knew that these people didn't pay attention. And he was concerned about their stage setup. Didn't want anybody getting hurt. And there were very strict, you know, orders. And if, if people aren't paying attention, so if they, if they found out they showed up and they didn't have all the, just the brown M&Ms, they weren't doing it because it was like it was like reading the fine print 
Yeah, I get that completely. Film is a funny animal, and I, I love film, and I've liked working in film some, and uh, I'm supposed to direct the film here. You know, it got, it got side um, line while the virus came along. You know, it was the same time they were supposed to shoot The Thicket with Peter Dinklage in April, and that got sidelined. I was supposed to uh, direct a film uh, based on a story of mine that my son did the ad adaptation for. That got sidelined. But I love film, but yet film, unless you can control a lot of it, like John Sayles, it's a tough animal. It's a really tough animal. And when Goldman wrote Butch, nobody knew what that was. And then when somebody finally decided to do it, he got paid the largest screenplay fee that anyone at that time had ever been paid. I think it was probably, I don't know, half a million dollars or something, which, you know, now wouldn't seem, uh, you know, necessarily all that wonderful, but still, you know, a good, good fee. And it not only, you know, was a great success, it started his career as a screenplay writer and enhanced his career as a novelist, you know, with Marathon Man and Magic and, uh, you know, Control and so on. And so, you know, he, by sticking to his guns and by George Roy Hill saying, we're going to shoot this, mm -hmm. not what you want. We're going to shoot this. And he was big enough to get it done at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, they created the classic. It's example like, you know, Sam Peckinpah always complained that, you know, somebody was always redoing his stuff, re-editing his material, like, like major Dundee and things like that. So it was the same thing that they were trying to do, but it's one of those rare cases where they didn't. And so there was this great Western that dealt with Western tropes in unexpected ways, mm -hmm. had two characters that were just endearing to you and that were very funny, played by two perfect actors. And Redford was not a star then. That, that yeah. movie made Redford a star. Because yeah. I, I recognized him from a couple of things, but, it, you know, he was in a Twilight Zone episode, but I didn't really know him. He was nobody to me. I went and saw it because uh, it was Paul Newman. I didn't know anything about Goldman at that time either because it was 69 and uh, I was still uh, in high school and I went and saw that. And it, it, you know, every chance I got, I'd go back to the movie. And back then you didn't have to leave. You could sit and watch it twice. They would play it again because it didn't make you leave. And then that started later. But I sit there and watch that thing over and over and over. And every chance I ever got to go back to the film to see it, when it came to the drive-in, I went to see it. When it was on television, I saw it. I bought the DVD or the really originally I bought the videotape, VHS tape. And so over the years that, that movie has uh, taught me a lot. It teaches me something each time. And one of the things he had was this perfect timing. Um, and I don't remember if this was just in the script or if it actually appeared in the movie, but there's a scene where they arrive in a Bolivia and there's nothing there but chickens and yeah. just this little <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the book says, well, all of Bolivia, can't be like this. Right. And Sundance says, how do you know? This might be the garden spot. Yeah. You know? yeah. So kind of unexpected things that you didn't hear in Westerns normally, yeah. but were really the kind of things that people might've said. And if they didn't, they should have. And it was just, or the scene when they're on the cliff and they're, they're looking down at the water and, and uh, Sundance doesn't want to jump. And instead of just saying, look, man, you know, he, he didn't want to admit he couldn't swim. Yeah. And, and as yeah. Bruce said, yeah. Paul will probably kill you, yeah. you know, but he didn't want to admit that he was going to have a shootout yeah. rather than jump in the water or admit that he couldn't swim. So there were those moments like that, that were just wonderful. And Butch's ability to just bullshit with anybody, you know, you keep on thinking, Butch, that's what you do best. 
And mm-hmm. he's talking about what is it that uh, you you know I, I've got twenty twenty vision and everybody else is wearing bifocals. Yeah, you know? yeah, and yeah. That, that was there's moments like that that make it different uh, than most westerns, and especially in nineteen sixty nine. And yeah. then you had probably like the Wild Bunch and things like that were coming along. So it was a that era into the early. 70s were some of the greatest era of film ever ever you know you not only had yeah. butch you know you had the wild bunch you had little big man you you had um a raging bull uh i mean the list could go on and on and on there were all of these incredible movies that were breaking ground and using actors or actresses that didn't look like the normal you know handsome guy or uh, always the regular kind of babe some of the women were beautiful but different in the way that Hollywood had done it before. They looked more like, uh, you know, somebody of that era. And, and like you said, you have Westerns and you realize that everybody had 50s hairdos. All the women had 50s hairdos. Yeah. But in that era, there was this whole attempt to be realistic and yet to be bigger than real, to have hyperbole as well. And uh, so there was this whole group of directors, writers, and actors who were doing just that. I read something over at LateAndTired.com, and he was talking about the strengths and things in the movie, and that one of them was that you feel almost as if you're part of it. And the, the long scene, for example, where they're uh, running away from the super posse, right, that you never actually see. That's another thing that's unique about this. You don't really ever have a clear view of what exactly guys riding off in the background. Yeah. And you're always wondering, are they going to be, you know, are they, are they gone? And you're kind of left in this suspenseful state wondering what's over the the edge of the horizon and all of a sudden, and here they come and they're like, man, who are these guys and stuff? I told Chad, I said, it reminded me of this movie called Jerry. It was a Ben Affleck's brother, Chad. Casey Affleck. Yeah. 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 And they're walking through the desert. And how long does that scene last? It's just them walking and there's hardly any movie. That's well, the whole movie, right? <laughs> so, yeah, so it's, they're, lost. It's, they're lost. They're lost, but there's a long time where they're walking and it's quiet. There's no words, and it's it. Yeah. You kind of you're almost wondering. You feel this this drudging feeling as you're watching it, but you're in it. And and I felt like in that scene that we were in it. But not only that, but that there were other things like um that on the one hand they had. Uh, the things that you would typically find. You have the robbing the banks, you have the trains, they run around the West and everything. And yet, on the other hand, they're down to earth. They're not these grand heroes. He's not, it's not a Zorro. You know, it's not a, it's not a Lone Ranger type person. And so you have this idea that they're real down to earth. Uh, you can imagine the conversations happening, the kind of humor that's taking place in the midst of, of dread, dread. But also, it's about a partnership between them and not just overcoming a singular conflict. Well, right? it was a, it's a love story too. It's a love story between those two men, as well as the love story that that's between Butch and Sundance and Edda. They both love her, you know, the, but it's this friendship. And that's where a lot of Happen Leonard concept came to me is that, and I, I had some dear friends at, at certain times in my life that I felt a bit close to. And it, it's really a love story in the sense of friendship, you know, that kind of love, plus mm-hmm. that whole thing with Edda. And in the end, they continue to do what they're doing, and they continue to stick with one another, and Edda goes home. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah. You know, at least in the movie, no one knows exactly what happened. Um, but, you know, to me, that was what was fascinating about it, because you didn't normally see in Westerns either where 
you would have the two friends that would show that kind of connection. It wasn't exactly unheard of, but to the degree that that was where, where they were like quarrelsome a couple, you know, that, uh, when they're, when they're having the final shootout there, they're like, you know, I, we're, I got an idea where we'll go. I don't want to hear it. And he goes, Australia, I, I secretly, I, I felt you wanted to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, right. And you actually, my, the impression, he really did want to know. <laughs> when I was watching that uh, yesterday, I you know, refreshed, you know, I was watching it, and my wife had come in, and she came in during a part where, you know, some of the music, in my opinion, wasn't that great in some of the scenes. She came in during a scene, it may have been a bicycle scene, I can't remember what, what it was, Raindrops keep falling on my head. Yeah, yeah, but it was it was it was a different scene with some really bizarre music, and I can't remember what it was, but uh, with they're riding on the horses and stuff. And then my wife comes in, she looks at the TV because I was in the bedroom watching it. She goes, "I can't believe you're watching this," because she's used to me watching like right. you know, like before I take a nap, I'll watch, I'll put on some uh, Italian horror film or something from the seventies, like just really bad, bad dubbing, bad music, you know, and I just like fall asleep watching it and I said um it's good you, you you I think you'd like it so she ended up sitting down and, and laying down and watching the rest of the movie with me for like the next like I think half hour the last half hour and then today she goes are there any more of those Sundance movies <laughs> yeah. I like, yeah I was like no she yeah. goes I really like that I like the, the I think I like the first half even better and that that part that you're talking about about the writers it reminded me of um the Nazgul and uh, like Tolkien's stuff, you know, these writers off in the distance that they're, they're kind of ominous because no, you don't know who Tolkien. they are. No. Yeah. No. It's, it's what I it tried, reminded me I, of. I, I get into it. I've watched the movies and enjoyed them, but I never could do Tolkien. I never could do those uh, big high fantasy much. Although when I was a kid, I read a bunch of them. Uh, you know, Gormenghast and things like that by other writers uh, other than, but Tolkien, I would try to, and I go, I, man, I can't keep up with the names, let alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And I don't think there's anything yeah. wrong with them. They just don't appeal to me. And I, I don't really, you know, elves singing songs and stuff just didn't do a lot I've, for me. I know George Martin and I have a different view of that. George is a big, big fan of, of that. Oh, oh, he would have <laughs> to be, wouldn't he? Yeah. I, I don't, uh, I've read The Hobbit and I've read the first two books in Lord of the Rings trilogy, but it, I, I think I read them because, and I enjoyed them, but I, I think read I the read Hobbit. them because it was just like, it was almost like I felt like I had to because they were supposed to be classics and, <laughs> and but I, I, it was kind of sluggish. I'm glad I read them, but yeah, the names and stuff and some of the politics. I tried it about four or five times. I have these great editions in there and I just couldn't do it. You know, a book that was like that for me for a while. And then when I read it, I thought it was brilliant. was Moby Dick. Have you ever read Moby Dick? I haven't read it. No. Oh, Jeremiah. God, no, I, I haven't. That's what I told. That's what I told Jeremy Wagner. I said, oh, I hadn't, yeah. I hadn't read Moby Dick and I hadn't seen Jaws, man. Oh, when if you haven't seen Jaws and your, your life is, I know, I, <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, I, I promised, I promised the listeners and him. He actually tweeted out to uh, a Jaws fan page that we've got a virgin here, right? <laughs> he's a Read he's a forty. The book's good. The book's great. They're a little yeah. different in that when they did the um, film, I think they made it a little bit more friendly because some of the characters are somewhat, at least one of the major characters, Hooper's somewhat different in the book, but. I, I think it's one of the best uh, suspense novels I've read. The construction is incredible. And I remember reading it and looking and I had my feet up in the chair. 
And then when I went to the movies, I had my feet up into the chair. And I may not have the same impact now because it's been ripped off so much. But when I first saw that, I had never seen anything. It, it's so wonderful to see something that you that's never been before. And it's like The Exorcist, when we saw it then, there was nothing like that. It was an mm -hmm. incredibly scary movie, even for an atheist. <laughs> and so that kind of stuff was just frightening as could be, you know. And there are things that you see at certain times that mean more, but there are things like Butch Cassidy, which I think continue to resonate because there's so much about character. You know, they, they, uh, the characters are still there. They're not going away. And some yeah. of the stuff like, you know, you think, oh, that's a great scene where they blow up the train and all the money comes out. Yeah. That's what really happened. Yeah. They did that and you, they have photographs of it and the train's all busted up, and the, you know, and they knocked, yeah. they blew it all out. And the guy that wouldn't let them in, that was a real guy. And they actually encountered him twice in reality and they put it in the film. And, you know, and, and he, he would, he talked to Butch, you know, <laughs> it wasn't personal. Uh, Woodcock, Woodcock was his yeah, name. Woodcock. And they, yeah. that you Woodcock. Yeah. yeah. And so they encountered him twice in just like in the film, you know? And so a lot of that yep. stuff was very similar. And when you, that, that scene with uh, the bicycle, a lot of people don't like, I actually love it. And the raindrops falling on my head is not my favorite song, but the truth of the matter is a lot of the old songs of that era were beginning to be like that. They were starting mm. to have that kind of sound. And I thought they captured that really well. And the whole idea that here he is with what was then modern technology, yeah. the bicycle, and yeah. then all of a sudden he, he gets rid of it. I'm not going to accept this. And we're going to go down south where it's still old, but you can't get away from progress. You can't get away from modern right. technology. It follows them. And in fact, it, it leads to, you know, gradually them being caught. You know, there's, there's things like, there, like telegraph. In reality, yeah. there are things like you know, telegraph. There are things like trains that became uh, more and more efficient. There were cars beginning, you know, close to that era. And so you're beginning to have this whole different change. The Gatling gun uh, or Hotchkiss, I guess that was a Gatling gun. And it was just a different uh, sort of thing that was going on. And that's what they're trying to get away from. But you can't beat technology yeah you know the yeah. world outgrows them mm -hmm. and that they're in that they're in that fantastic fantastical period of of transition yeah. it comes in phases you know as technology grows and we begin to like marshall McLuhan says it becomes part of us in a way it's an extension of ourselves yeah, yeah, yeah. and but in any the whole idea of um that the medium is the message he says that whenever you're talking about a medium kind of like a tweet, right? right? That the tweets, the words of it is the, the juicy, bloody meat that distracts the watchdog of the mind. Uh, and that the medium itself is the burglar. And it's kind of the same yes. with the, the telegraph and the bicycle and, the, and the, the, the train and all of this, that no matter what, by the time it's integrated, it's integrated so much, it's predictable as to where it's going, when it's coming back, who's getting involved. Exactly. You've got Pinkerton that's now using technological more scientific detective work yeah. you know and and right. a, a reach with the, what 30,000 uh, more people than the military at the time right i mean huge yeah. the private eye where we get the term private eye yeah. they were using right. techniques that that i loved how i forget the guy's name the one they tied up you know and he kind of foreshadows the end Why about not? you know it's going to be bloody you know you're two bit thieves it's over 
It's going to be bloody, and the only choice you exactly have is where it's going to happen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love that in a film or a book where you actually, you are told how this is going to end. You're told yeah. what's going to happen. And, and even if you're not paying close attention, it's the foreshadowing is there. And, you know, I was thinking about the technology changes. And, you know, my dad, when he was growing up, he saw one of the uh, airplanes, you know, and he was amazed. It was, I guess it was a biplane. And, he had, and he'd never seen one before, you know, when he was a kid. And he saw cars for the first time. They rode horses. Mm -hmm. He was known for having a pinto horse, you know, or paint pony rather instead of a pinto. He was known for that back then. And uh, they did everything on foot, on horseback, in wagon. And when I was a kid growing up um, in Mount Enterprise, certainly they had cars. It was the 50s. But you still had people that would come to town in their wagons drawn by horses and mules to get their feed at the feed store because they were then going to go out to the field and unhitch those horses or mules and plow with them. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up with that, you know. And, and so I grew up with a certain transition myself, you know. I, I mean, I saw the first people go to the moon. And uh, my grandmother saw Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. She was born in the 1880s, and she died in the 1980s. She was nearly 100 years old. She uh, told me till the day she died about Buffalo Bill, and I would always listen because she had actually seen him. You know, she, she was a child when she saw Buffalo Bill Wild West show or one of its uh, incarnations. I, I didn't know to even ask that at the time, and I don't even know exactly how old she was. I just know she was a child. And, uh, and the stuff that she described to me when I would read about Buffalo Bill, there it was. It was the exact same thing, you know. So that was a memory that was important to her. And I always said, do you miss those old days? She said, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> because when I first would go to their house, they had an outdoor toilet. They had a well. They didn't have running water. And uh, a lot of people, we always had running water and, and uh, uh, you know, electricity and stuff. But they didn't. And I saw them get plumbing. I saw them get electricity, you know, and gas, you know, for, because then you, they were heating with gas and cooking with gas. The wood stove went out and the new stove that worked on gas comes in. So even in my lifetime, there's been those transitions. And in you guys' lifetime, every six months, the world is different. Yeah. The technology is different. Yeah. But used to the kind of technology that you experience every six months took 10, 15 years. And when I was growing up in Mount Enterprise and Gladewater in the 50s and the 60s, it was pretty much until about the late 60s that you were living 20 years back. Because when the 50s was very much like the 30s, there was a little more money than there had been in the Great Depression. But people looked the same. They, were, they had cars that were from the 40s anyway. From, you know, you would see a lot of those old black bombs. My dad had one even into the 50s because people couldn't afford to replace a car as frequently. And uh, you could buy a house for uh, you know, $1,000. You could buy a car for $300. You know, you would, and then it became a little more expensive. And that, but people's viewpoints about the world were still very much the same because you didn't have all of this technology telling them new things. And television was new. I mean, television was, uh, you know, actually was built back, what, about 19... 10 or 20s, 1920s, and it became, you know, after World War II, people began to have televisions in their house because now there were stations that could provide, uh, you know, some kind of product. But I remember watching television when it didn't have product. It was in the afternoon, it might go off for a while, and mm -hmm. then it would come back on, you know. Yeah. And uh, then gradually it filled up, and then at 10.30, television was off. You had, it was done. 
And then they said, well, let's add the, this uh, Tonight Show. And then, you know, let's add the Late Show. Let's start showing movies. And all of this stuff was older stuff. And when I was watching in the 50s, they had, they had uh, you know, Hopalong Cassidy uh, was these movies. Sorry, William Boyd were Western movies based on uh, the books Hopalong Cassidy by Mumford. And the books were very, very different. But these became so popular that they were like the Beatles were later on. He was so famous as Hopalong Cassidy that those movies were, he bought the television rights. Nobody thought you should buy the television rights because they thought it was a fad because radio was here to stay. Yeah. And so they, he bought all those rights and then he made new Hopalong Cassidy episodes and it became the most famous thing in the 50s and it became the most popular thing along with things like I Love Lucy. And those were the original stuff. And, and you saw old Tarzan movies, old Flash Gordon serials, Buck Rogers serials. That's what they had on television. So we weren't getting all of this, uh, you know, new information. We were living the 30s and the 40s and, and, and uh, that era that was before us. And so, we, you know, I saw all of that stuff. I didn't know it was old. I'd go to the theater and they would show old serials like the Purple Monster Strikes or stuff with Gene Autry. I didn't know that stuff was old. And, and it, comparatively, it wasn't that old. But for a kid, that was old stuff. It was from yeah. the 40s, you know. It was amazing. That's the kind of experiences I had because everything dragged behind by 20 years because technology and, and the social things just didn't move that fast. And now they move like that. It's breakneck. It, it, almost at yeah, a speed that our, our species hasn't evolved to, to do. Right. I'm just saying my brother and I are 17 years apart and our lives were very similar. <laughs> you, know, you said in, a, in the documentary you were talking about growing up in a time where radio was the thing, right? And then seeing... It was uh, just you, beginning to change when I was a kid, yeah. Yeah, and you were talking about how they were feeding on each other, you know, in a good way, they were, they, where yeah. there's that transition period, you know, where that takes place yeah. and everything. And I, I, I thought it was so fascinating, you know, and I... I think it's it's interesting because, you know, back to the, you know, you mentioned the late night shows and that whole medium is the message, that whole McLuhan thing, you know, his, his uh, I guess, most iconic symbol for it would be the light bulb because it doesn't, that doesn't have content, right? It's a light, but look at what that's done. You mentioned stoves having flowing water. Look at how that technology impacts life to such a degree that it becomes integrated to where people can't imagine it without it before the watchdog of the mind realizes that the burglar of the technology has in fact dramatically impacted the society which is where you have the nostalgia you know the the member berries right the idea of oh my gosh i don't want to let go of this even though you know it's over well you know the nostalgia is never as wonderful as you remember it I mean, there are certain aspects of it are. I miss a lot of things about yeah. small towns that be. everybody knew everybody, whatever. But I don't miss the racism that, you know, you still have racism. But back then, yeah. it was accepted. It was part of life. And you don't have the homophobia that you had then. Because at that time, at that time uh, homosexual meant pervert. People didn't nuance that. Women, a lot, most of them didn't have any real rights. They were property. A lot of children were still that way. I wasn't raised that way. And my mother wasn't like, like that. And, but that was still not unusual. I remember um, men that said, every once in a while I have to hit my wife to correct her. And that was not considered odd. You think, what the hell? 
You know, if I hit my wife, I'd never wake up. She'd wait till I went to bed and kill me, you know, and I wouldn't blame her. I'd never hit my wife. But you see, the point I'm making is that some of that was just accepted. It was so bizarre. And, and, and women were always secondary and they were always there to support the man. And they were always there uh, for, you know, cooking and bed and pregnancy and, you know, that kind of stuff. And you just, you know, my mother who was born in 1917, my dad was 1909. No, excuse me. My mom was born in 1914. She was a painter and she was very much ahead of her time, but she got stalled. Not, not necessarily by my dad because he was willing to let her do whatever she wanted, but society, society stalled her and she put her dreams on me and she liked to read and she loved writers and she handed that to me. And my dad handed me self-reliance. He handed me uh, physicality. You know, I, I was, uh, you know, I was one of those guys that was different than a lot of people that become writers and stuff. I was not a nerd. I was not un- disliked. I was not unpopular. Um, you know, I, all that, but I was always different. And I was always different in such a way that I could deal with other people, but yet I never felt entirely comfortable with most people. I, I found that my interests were different. You know, I, I didn't, I wasn't comfortable with a lot of viewpoints that they had. You know, I wasn't interested in what they were interested in. I would read comics, Batman, Superman, the Justice League. When they were first, you know, Justice League was first coming out and Superman and Batman were beginning to be different. The Flash was the new Flash, all of that stuff. And I knew all that stuff like it was Greek mythology, which in a sense it's American mythology and other kids would like them, but they just didn't have that same connection to it, you know, and, uh, it didn't, it didn't get in their soul like it does for me. The other day, you know, I'm uh, on TV, it's Stargirl comes up. It's brand new. I'm so excited. My heart is beating faster and it may not even be any good, but I've watched it and I liked it. I liked the, I've watched the first three episodes and, and the original seasons of the flash. I get, I get so excited because it connects me to that good part of nostalgia. And then, you know, eventually the, they, they all start to kind of run together after a while and be a lot alike, but I still have hope every time. And for a period of time, they're often exactly what I want. And I still gl- I'm glad that I've never lost that love and that connection for uh, superheroes and science fiction and fantasy and horror and crime. And yet also, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald and Ernest Hemingway and the stuff that they gave Faulkner, Flannery O'Connor, especially, you know, she was wonderful. Or Carson McCullers and Harper Lee. I mean, all of that stuff is still magic to me. If, if you could see my, my study, it's nothing but books. I have books everywhere and I really have, and I have three warehouses of them. That's why I'm going to have to finally break <laughs> down and get rid of them because I have a lifetime of books. But to me, I walk in there and I pick up Ray Bradbury and I pick up Raymond Chandler and I pull James Kane off and I've read all of these books, many of them, many times, but I will flip them over and, and read sections. You know, I will read the beginning of farewell to arms maybe once a week because it's just so phenomenally written or I'll reread Gatsby every three or four years because it is the, um, it, it's the perfect novel even now. And for our time, it still speaks for this person that's reaching for this American dream and maybe not the best way, but he's reaching for that green light. And it, there's a, 
thing where he walks out on the dock and he can see this green light and he reaches for it. And uh, I just think that kind of stuff is so marvelous. And to people to miss out on those things and to live their lives in such a structured and boring way. And I'm not knocking people to go to work. I did that. I'm a blue collar guy. I did all of that. You know, I've, I've fought people for money. I've uh, cleaned toilets. I've done all that shit. So I don't think it's beneath me and I don't think it's lesser. I think any man, that woman that goes to a job and sticks with it to take care of their family is heroic, but you still have that other side and you, and to lose that is kills what life is worth. And if you begin to find that you're not liking what you like before, it's because you need something new and there's plenty out there. And once you find that, you may find that some of the stuff that was kind of losing its luster begins to glow again, you know? Mm -hmm. And I just realized I, I wasn't going to read um, Andre Norton for the rest of my life. You know, you mentioned Andre Norton earlier and I read some of her or whatever, but they had their importance to me. Uh, probably my favorite sentimental writer is Edgar Rice Burroughs, but I can't go back and reread those all the time. I've, I've moved beyond them. I can read the openings and get the same excitement. I can read the endings and get the same excitement, but it's that all the in-between that's become somewhat uh, tedious. But those books changed my life. And there are other books that, you know, will come again. Will, will new ones will come, and I will go back and reread some that will do that same thing but you've constantly got to be reaching out, pulling the old off, getting the new ones, reading people like Chad, you know, who's, who's our guy now, you know, the modern guys now. And uh, you, you've got to always stay happy. And, and I'm not talking about people that suffered depression or whatever, but you've got to understand that it's, it is about you to a great extent. And I fortunately don't, you know, don't have that chemical problem, but, I, I, I always felt that the writer I'm most akin to in attitude was Ray Bradbury. You know, I have that same fascination with all of that. And it changed my life. And when I, I read comics, I picked those up. I was never the same again. And when I saw films, I was never the same again. And when I began to read books and I read the Iliad and I read the Odyssey and, uh, you know, all of that stuff, Mark Twain, I go, wow, what is this? This is what I want to do. Because around me, the world was gray. I mean, it felt gray. And then when I started doing this, the color started leaking into things. Because the 50s seemed gray, you know? And I was just always drawn to it. And I think it's important that we, we maintain that magic. I'm big on nostalgia. Like, I am going through this thing right now. I just turned 50. And 50 You're a kid. Yeah. I only really started pursuing but writing, trying to pursue writing as a career uh, six years ago. And I, I mm -hmm. feel like I've, you know, I, I told you earlier that I didn't really start reading until I was probably 24. And then, you know, mm -hmm. I started a family. So there was a lot of stuff in between. You know, I had bands and stuff like that. There was things in between that kept me from, and I wish I would have started earlier. And lately it's just been on my mind so much. I told Jeremiah this before that it feels like, uh, and I know I'm only 50, um, so I don't, I don't mean to make myself some that old, you know, when, when you've got a couple of years uh, on me. But it, because, I've only been, <laughs> because I've only been writing, you know, trying, trying to, you know, make this a career for six years, it feels like it feels almost kind of scary because I know that it takes time. 
and I, I, I regret it does, not. You have an advantage, though. You have an advantage is that by starting older, you also have more experiences to rely on. That's and, true. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm glad I started young. I really am. I mean, I, I think a lot of my early stuff is just absolutely awful. But, you know, it's how you learn to, to do it. But if you start late, the advantage is, is that you now have a lot of personal experience that you can bring to the work. And the other thing is, if you did things you enjoyed, did you like bands? Oh yeah. Did you like being in bands? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. What the, what the hell? You didn't waste any time. You did the things you wanted to do. That's what I mean yeah. by magic. It's not, it's not because you do one thing. It's because you do the other things, you know, martial arts. I, I've done it all my life and I, I would not have missed it for anything. And, uh, it's, I mean, I've had, I had a double hernia, stomach hernia operation last year. I've had all kinds of broken bones <laughs> and things disconnected and I would do it again. And, uh, I've spent hours when I was first learning to write, trying to, trying to just put two words together where they didn't sound like I was the, the uneducated idiot. I actually was, uh, I had to learn to spell. My wife could spell. I thank God for spell check on the damn computer, but all of that stuff, I didn't know grammar. I didn't know any of that stuff, but I knew what I wanted. But at the same time, I, you know, I was a martial artist. I was, a, I, I had a family. I had all kinds of interest. I had, my, you know, my kids and their interest. And I've, and I've been so happy to see them, you know, expand in the things that they want to do. And they're starting out at a, a different level because, you know, I really did start out, I started out with good parents, but I started out at the bottom of the heap. You know, I didn't have a lot of money, you know, and we didn't always have the best of things. We always had what we needed. And we thought of ourselves as broke, not poor. But our kids started out at the point when I had money, but they, I made them go to work. You know, they had to work. They had to pay for their car insurance and their gas and things like that because you wanted them to have that self-reliance, but still they traveled all over the world. They got to go to all kinds of uh, interesting events and museums and be exposed to classical music and rockabilly music and soul music and all kinds of music. Some of it I hated, some of it I loved, but I felt that the exposure was important. And I, I feel good about that because you know, we were able to provide that and, and to have them have a totally different life experience than I had. Not that I'm complaining about mine, but just knowing that they're not going to have to scrape for every damn dollar and count every penny so they can make sure they can not have an interruption in service with the electric bill at the end of the month. You know, so to me, it's not just about you didn't waste any time if you now mine that time and you dig into it and you put it into the writing. And also if you lived life during that other time, that time wasn't wasted. When I plowed the mule, I didn't waste time smelling mule farts. It was, it was an amazing time in my life. I did things that were, you know, nobody is doing anymore and probably, you know, I would never do again. And I loved it, but I don't look at those and say, Oh my God, I should have started writing when I was 16 or 17. Cause I already was, yeah. but I wasn't yeah. thinking of it in that way. Then I was doing it because I could not do it. And then at some point I, I wanted to do what I'd always wanted to do was write full time. But in the meantime, I lived life. I went to college and uh, a little bit. And even though 
uh, I didn't stick with it. I was one of, I, I had a, there was a famous hair case called Lansdale et al versus TJC where I refused to cut my hair, which was not a lot longer than this, except there was more up here. And, uh, I won that case and you can look it up. It was a, it's a classic civil rights case. And, you know, I've done all sorts of stuff in my life and I don't look back on those with regrets, even mistakes. I look back and say, okay, I, what can I learn from that? Did I learn anything from it? And everybody always said that, oh, you learn from your mistakes, but most people don't learn shit. And when most of us don't learn, we don't learn shit from history. We keep doing the same things over and over and over. But you as an individual, I think, can make that decision. You know, you see the way black people are treated and especially we're seeing this now. And I'm thinking, really, are we not past this? Are we not moving past understanding the, the, that this is about humanity, not about color, and that we can't treat people correctly and that we can't see wrong when we're looking right at it, you know? But it's gotta be up to you and you've gotta look at your life as, 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 as this wonderful, experiment that you are borrowing chemicals from and using them now for you in your work. And what you need to do is say, what did I do then that I can write about now? Mm -hmm. What experiences did I have both good and bad? Yeah. And how can I bring them to my work so that when people pick it up, they, it, it's, it's in the mouth, it's in the taste, you know, you can, you can actually feel it. And it's not just, I'm the monster came out of the woods and he grabbed him by the leg and pulled it off. You know, you don't want that yeah. unless it's a joke, you know, yeah. but you can bring your experiences, Chad, like, like your experiences with your father, your experiences about uh, a character that didn't read until he was older, yeah. but loved music and did that and found this moment in time. And it, it could be applied to anything. It could be a straight novel. It could be, um, a, a science fiction piece because it's still background. Even if you throw part of it out, as Hemingway used to talk about the iceberg effect. And that's like, this is the iceberg, but it's underwater. So all you got's here. But if you know what's going on in that scene, mm -hmm. then the reader will sense it. And if you know what's going on and you cut a lot of it, the reader will sense what you were after because you boiled it down to the, the elements that count the most. And that, that is so true. And everything you've ever learned, you don't have to put it in there for word for word, but what you know addresses how you present what it is that you write. And if you draw on that, you'll always have something to write about. You guys are talking about nostalgia and life experience. And, you know, I, I talked a lot about nostalgia and, and things like that in our episode about Blue Velvet, uh, David Lynch's Blue Velvet, and kind of the underbelly of nostalgia. I grew up, you know, 62 Cadillacs and stuff, you know, a, talk radio. That was my, my upbringing and stuff. But one of the things as I was watching this film is, is something, it, there were a number of scenes that immediately just kind of arose within me, this idea that I've been there before. And it was true because most of the filming was done around Zion National Park in Utah. And I, when I found yeah. that out, I was just, I was so happy about it. And it reminded me, I, you know, I, I called my dad right afterward and he's like, you haven't seen that? I said, no. And so we talked and everything. And, and I asked him, I said, you know, I was wondering if they had recorded 
at this place where when he uh my dad when he got remarried he lives out in palm springs uh he had his bachelor party and we went up the mountain right we go past all the windmills and stuff and and we get up to this mountain area and there's this this really nice but very small um saloon right styled thing and they have bands up there right there a lot of big bands and i what is this place and they had this this area next to it where they used to to make movies come to find out it's called pappy and harriet's it's a very popular place a lot of musicians have been there but also the, the, right next to it is a thing called pioneer town and it's smaller in order to make the protagonist look bigger it's an old trick and they said well look off to your left and so i looked off to my left and there was a certain kind of mountain range and they said now looked off to your right it was it was a different kind. so one was like a plateau one one had those kind of large craggy rocks with stone all over the place and then one straight ahead had you know kind of the uh uh the classic snow cap you know so you have three different styled mountain ranges and they said there was a trick that you could turn the camera and you would be in a different place and it wouldn't take long to get over to that mountain and you could record over there and so it was a it was an ideal situation so you could have multiple scenes multiple different movies in fact all recorded in the exact same place. I didn't see anything about Pappy and Harriet's. I didn't see anything about Pioneer Town in the description, but it immediately made me think about it, and I was so glad about Zion National Park because that was that's a place that if people haven't been there, they they have to go. I mean, it's, it's so beautiful and so gorgeous. You know, you hit on something else, and and you hit it on it indirectly. But sometimes, if you read a book or you read a story and you see a film and you know it's nothing like your life, but you say, I think I've been that there, or I think I have felt that way. It's because they have tapped into something that's real, that's real to a lot of us. And it may not be what, exactly what you're seeing, but it's this moment. And it's, it's this internal moment that's been made external in film. In book, it's even, you know, it's, it's more internal. But that comes from somebody borrowing from their own experience or their own excitements, you know, and trying to make something of it. And I, I think that that's important in books and film instead of trying to sit down and figure out what's going to scare somebody. Cause I don't really give a shit. If I scare them, I'm happy. But if, if that, you know, I, I don't worry about that. I say, am I, is this something I want to write? And is this scary for me? Then that's fine or disturbing for me. And then, you know, I go through periods where I, I just don't care about horror fiction and I go through periods where I don't care about science fiction or, any of it. And then other times I come back and there's nothing that's more glorious to me than those things. Yeah. So, you know, follow your, follow your heart, you know, uh, Jeremiah. Yes. So you got a rating for this movie that we, that Joe made us watch. Oh dude. <laughs> well, yeah, you really twisted my arm here. Yeah. So, uh, it was amazing. I mean, I, I love it. I, and it, it gave me yet another reason. In fact, it's just, this is the, the, the end of it. I don't even know if I will ever mention this ever again. But Ebert, I am not a fan of that guy's <laughs> reviews of movies. I watch these yeah. movies, and I'm like, man, this is this is an amazing movie. And then he comes out, and he's like, oh, that, they spent so much on location and wasted time for everything else. I'm like, are you kidding? Or, they, or he's complaining about the montage, or he's complaining about the music, or he's complaining about the ending, the, the freeze frame. And I'm like, I'm like, this is wonderful. wonderful. Yes, it was foreshadowed by Etta, where she's where she's telling Sunday, and she says, "Look, I'll go with you, right to Bolivia, <laughs> a crazy place. I'll go with you, I'm but I'm, you I'm not going to watch you die." And guess what? Nobody did. 
Nobody watched them die. Mm -hmm. Think of how perfect it was. This is why Ebert's just, he was, he was off his rocker. They're I insane. actually like Ebert a lot. I don't agree with that one. But, you know, the weird thing about that, and, and this is another thing about seeing it, <laughs> the movie was experimental in that yeah. it started with those, uh, you know, the, the old kind of sepia look when it was showing the old movie that was somewhat like the great train robbery, but not. And then yeah. it gradually moves back and you realize that this is, you know, you're watching a movie within a movie. And yeah. then you have that great freeze frame at the back and it goes back yeah. to sepia because they're now frozen in the past. Right. You know, the, the world has moved on, but they haven't. And uh, they have also died in an, in a noble, heroic, and somewhat mysterious way, you know, beyond the moment. And I just always, it, it, it's just such a fantastic film. Have you seen Little Big Man, by the way? No, it's on my list, though. My dad gave me a whole bunch. Oh, no. what's, what's that? No. Willie Boy, Willie Boy was here. What is that called? Yeah. I tell him Willie Boy was here. Tell him Willie Boy was here. My dad gave me that one. I, I have a list. You know, but I, I, I sit there and I, I think, you know, and I don't want to beat a dead horse with Ebert, you know, but the thing is, is I look at the end. I'll just stick with the end, right? No more, no more ad homes. So at, at the end, to say, look at the sequence of events, right? Devastation, major hope, comedic devastation, working hard to get to that place where you're able to speak the language and in, in the meantime comedic because you go into rob and you don't know how to say the words then you find <laughs> out, you know then you then they're kind of taking a more serious right like they're like well let's just you know we're not going to get in trouble if we don't do crime anymore and then they find themselves in a real pickle where they end up having to do this and that's when it comes out that butch had never killed anybody before and he's like, and this is the time you decided to tell me kind of thing. Yeah. And then when all that's done, they get busted by something that they didn't even anticipate. And, and you know, they're getting shot at and they're, they're misdirected. They think that it's, it's LaFour, right? Um, and so that's who they think it is. So they go in there, they're hiding. Oh, and in real trouble. <laughs> yeah, they're in real trouble. And so they're like, man, what is, what's going on with this? And, and they're running out of bullets. So there's that suspense. And so they, they, they cover and he goes running out and he's doing this trick in between the horses, but then he gets shot. I mean, so you think, you, so it's up, down, up, down. And, and you call, finally. You call that cover? You call yeah. that cover? Yeah. He back and he's shot. You know, but see, they know they're going to die. Yeah. And they talk around it. And, then, and it's one of the beautiful things about that film is it's not always on the nose with every scene, you know. It's just off to the side. That's another thing I learned from that film is not, not to always be on the nose. You know, to come at it slightly angled, you know, that, that's one thing my son talks about when he does, he sells screenplays and stuff. And when he talks about his not being on the nose, and I think he learned that from that film because it's one of his yeah. favorite films. In fact, he did a talk on that film uh, on another podcast oh, not wow. long ago. You know? I think he liked The Little Big Man better, you know, and it's, it's, all, it's very, very, very good. So at the end, you know, they're, they're sitting there and, and they're, they're, chuckling it up shot right hilarious interaction you mentioned it earlier and then they have to make this decision and i thought you know and i i wonder you know i i, I could understand the argument that they knew they were dead right um on the other hand i think they there's a there's a way to look at it that says did they believe that they were being followed by this that this was this one guy and there was a dramatic irony in the fact that 
by the time they busted out there thinking, oh, this is going to be hard enough dealing with whoever we're dealing with. But by the time they got out there, they were dealing with something way, and I won't tell everybody because it's, 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 yeah, no, I don't think they knew that what yeah. they were dealing with. I yeah. think they thought they were in a bad pickle, but I think they also had been able to escape from a lot of different situations. And, and just like in the movie, in reality, the way they got caught is they found a burrow or a donkey with that mark on it. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what happened in real life. You know, and they ended up in this little cabin or, or somewhat, it's a little different in the film, but similar. And uh, I think that, that one of the things that makes it such a good film is that it has so many real moments. It's what I was talking about in your own life is borrowing, borrowing from reality and building your fiction within and around reality. Because if you look, if you go read about Butch Cassidy, you'll go, oh my God, that's in the movie. Well, that really happened. But what he did was be able to build the characters in the way he wanted to present them. And, and you know, Butch was very much like that. I mean, just like that whole thing, well, I can't tell you I won't rob again, but I'll, I'll, I'll do this. And he was, yeah. everybody liked Butch. You know, the, the, the criminals liked him, the, the law liked him, because he was a, yeah. a likable guy, and he was a man of his word. <laughs> yeah. And yet he was a bank robber and, and a train robber. First uh, bank robbed was in Telluride. You know, which is very interesting because the the bank is still there and they have the the big safe that he that he robbed, you know, and all that. But he was just a, a, a small timer that decided he wanted to be a big timer and he would have horses where they would do relays and change horses. Nobody had ever done that before. Yeah. He wasn't like Jesse James and people like that. His whole idea was get in, don't hurt anybody. We get out and where everybody else gets caught is because they don't have horses in relay. They don't have this stuff set up. But we will, and he and then he had the hole in the wall where they would go to, you know, and uh, and it was such a hideout. Nobody wanted to go up in there because they might not come out. Yeah. So I think all those things considered, and given the fact that it, it is the last thing I'll say about it, given the fact that it is for a western, it did something curious, and that it made uh, not only kind of a duo, right, a bromance where they're. They're getting away and everything, and you don't have the, the the good guy is the bad guy. And the bad guy, the the kind of nefarious presence, are the good guys, right? And so you kind of have a soprano, like what we would later see with Sopranos, it's where it humanizes, hero. yeah, it humanizes the the villain, you know? So it's not so much of the Schneidly well, whiplash, yeah, you know, whiplash it, thing. It, it, it was maybe not the first buddy movie, but it was certainly one of the buddy movies that influenced a lot of buddy movies thereafter, you know, and people forget that too. That, that was the one that influenced the modern idea of the buddy movie. Yeah. And they continue so, to this sting and, and things like it's, it's a, it's, it's an influential film. So with all of those, yes, it's an influential film. It's all the aforementioned. And honestly, because ride high country, which one? Ride the High Country, Sam Peckinpah. No. My favorite film by Sam Peckinpah, and I like it even better than The Wild Bunch. I'm but writing it right it down is, now. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, it's fantastic. And uh, it's it's the transition of the old-fashioned film into this modern film is what Sam's doing with it. And it's just a, a, a very interesting film, and, and it's my favorite of his films. But it is kind of a buddy film, too. And uh, I think you should see it. And and uh, there's some influence of it in Bubba Hotep, which I, a story I wrote and that was filmed. And there's a mild influence of that, especially in the later scenes in the 
in the film. I saw that recently. I saw Bubba Hotep recently. I want to read the book. But as for this movie, I'll finish it up by simply saying, for me, because it is it is a classic, because it is, in my opinion, practically perfect, um, I would give it a 4-9 out of 5. And I, I, I think it's rightfully placed. If there was a canon that says, you know, if we send it off to the aliens, maybe we already have, right? To say it's in, a, it's in one of those capsules, man, we've sent it out. That if, if it's out there, man, better have Sundance. But what do you think, Chad? What do you, before we get to Joe's take, what, what's yours, man? How, how would you rate this film, buddy? You know, I had seen it before, but it was weird. I only remember a couple scenes. I don't know if it was back in my drinking days that I saw it or what, but <laughs> the first time. But uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm glad that, that Joe picked it. And I am going to dock at a star for the soundtrack. Um, but I, I, I'm four stars. Easy. It's, it's entertaining. It holds up really well. And uh, I, which I was surprised. And I thought uh, Redford and Newman were just uh, great together. I like any like buddy, you know, film that the platonic romance stuff. Um, and this was, this was really good. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it and I'm glad that got to see it again. So yeah, I get, I gave it four, four stars. What about yourself, Joe? I, it's probably a five, easy five star for you. It huh? is a five star for me. Yeah, uh, yeah, the soundtrack yeah. doesn't matter to me. This one, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, the, uh, even this raindrops fall on my head, I actually like it. And I, and I like it because the scene is, is about that, that idea of modern music and modern you know the bicycle and all that and then it mm -hmm. failing and i don't remember the other music you're talking about it but i saw it just last year i see it about every other year you know mm -hmm. but i, I think it, it's one of my it's my third favorite film of all time and i, I give it five stars you know mm -hmm. and my favorite film is to kill a mockingbird and i give it five stars and my next mm -hmm. favorite film is casablanca and i give it those three are all five star films for me because they, they they did more than just be a film they changed my life all three of them and the source for the book, To Kill a Mockingbird, certainly. And the, and now I've read, of course, a lot of Goldman, and I've read his screenplays, including Butch, because of that film. So all of those, uh, the impact goes beyond even just the viewing of the film. And, and, and its impact, it's the residuals as well. I'll just say this real quick. You mentioned the whole thing about the bike scene. And uh, I thought it was interesting that they said that uh, Paul Newman did the stunts for that because the stuntman couldn't... <laughs> Couldn't stay on the bike. Couldn't do it. Yeah. The, only, the only stunt that he didn't do was where he crashes into the area. He crashes. Right. And it, but, but Robert Redford, he, didn't, he wasn't one-upped because Robert Redford was doing his own stunts, including the train running on top. But it really upset Newman because he's like, I don't want my guy to die. <laughs> he's like, I don't want to yeah. see him hurt. And it, wow. the whole stunt angle to that, even, especially even the, blow, the scene where they're blowing up the the car and stuff that, I mean, yeah. that was an impactful thing. People, even with also would. When they actually jumped off of the, into the water, but when he was jumping along the train, that, that you could see. You know? Yeah. 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 I thought that was really interesting. A lot, a lot of people like, like uh, Newman and McQueen and all those people back then, a lot of them did their own stunts, you know, because that was just part of it. And uh, if you see the great escape of Steve McQueen, doesn't do all of the motorcycle riding. But he does a lot of it. Another one of my favorite movies is The, the Great Escape. What, one more bit of trivia that I, that I almost forgot to say that I thought was pretty, uh, pretty cool was that this was actually Sam Elliott's debut film. He was right. credited as card player number two. Didn't show, didn't show his face or nothing. 
I forgot that. I, I did know that little bit of uh, trivia. You know, that, and that opening scene is so wonderful when, uh, you, know, you know, instead of the usual, uh, you know, you say that, smile, here's, yeah. here's Butch going, oh, man, this could go either way. Mm -hmm. this, could, this could go bad. And, and then he, and he's saying, hey, you get older every day. It's a law. And, yeah. uh, and then he's telling that guy, well, Sundance, and he throws that word out there. Do you think this is my last card? And we'll see yeah. if that has any. And it did. You know, it had an impact on the mm -hmm. other guy. And I thought that was great. Or the one where, where Sundance is trying to shoot, uh, show the guy his shooting skill, and he can't hit anything. And then he says, can I move? Yeah. And then it's yeah. that whole idea that, yeah. uh, you know, he can shoot on the move. Didn't Catherine Ross end up marrying uh, Sam Elliott? Sam Elliott. Yeah. Yes, Sam Elliott. Yeah. Yes. yeah, still married. Yeah, they've yeah. been married a long time. That was right. I think that, yeah. Maybe they met there. I don't know. I think they did meet there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, Jeremiah, watching Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, you know, you're sitting there and 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 you're seeing kind of experiencing something new and maybe even learning something. Do, is there anything that you walked away from this film that that maybe you could? implement in your own life and make you a, a better person or just a better man or anything yeah man you know i mean you got friends you've got enemies you go through hard times and i mean if you're somebody like me you kind of stack them up over <laughs> racking them up there's a lot of them that come your way a little bit controversial at times and if i'm ever you know ducking and running you know and and going for cover and, and I'm hearing all of the arguments and everything coming my way and trolls from every which direction. Um, I'm not just going to presume that it is my arch nemesis because there may in fact be a Bolivian army waiting outside for me. And so I've decided, you know, I'll give up on that, man. I said, I've seen this before. I know the script. And so that's what I would say. I'd say, look, you know, never, never underestimate your enemy and never assume that the person that you think is coming after you is alone. All right. What is your what, what do you take away from this man? If you had a if you had a moral to all of this. I mean, you're sagacious. You know, you you I think we've mentioned before we've already outed the the whole uh rigmarole you go through, you climb up a mountain and you know, do your ohms and stuff when you process this. You know, what is what is it that you took away from this after watching it? You know, what that you could apply to your life and even maybe encourage other people to apply to theirs. You know, Jeremiah, if, if, if you and I were bank robbers and there was like a, a beautiful woman that was probably into both of us, you know, yeah, yeah. I'd be staying at home, snuggling with her, tightening that bond while you eventually got <laughs> caught and chased off to Bolivia to live with the pigs. Sorry, man. <laughs> oh, man. You'd do that to me, wouldn't you, Chad? Oh. I, I would. Yeah, for the women. I, but, you know, hey, I would have to forgive you, dude, because, you know, I'd know you'd be hooking it up fat. So, yeah, the, you the know. importance of a good woman. Joe has got a – he's had some great women in his life. His wife yes. uh, encouraged him to write. She not only encouraged him, but held him accountable, made yeah. sure that it happened. <laughs> and my wife and, – and I know your wife, too. My wife, certainly, I wouldn't be – I wouldn't be able to do it without her, man. There's just no way. This, yeah. right, this whole yeah. writing thing, she's my biggest cheerleader. So, yeah, yeah. I, I'll, I got I'll the put same a good woman over a friend any day. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 you know, I always think I talk to female friends of mine that are writers, and the ones that do best have supportive husbands or, yes. you know, a supportive spouse, be, be it, uh, you know, two women, two men, whatever. It's got to be somebody that's supportive. 
and uh, because you need you need that, and especially if you fly off in all kinds of universes like like writers do. Uh, I, I think I'm fairly grounded for a writer. I'm one of those people I think is you know really pretty grounded. But nonetheless, I don't know that I would be had I not met my wife. That's legit. So, uh, yeah, this one's for the ladies, I guess. It's for the so, ladies, man. Yeah. yeah. Joe, thanks so much for for coming out, yeah, and hanging out for for this long. It's been it's been fun to like actually kind of get to meet you and get to know you, uh, you know, even more and hang out and talk about one of your favorite movies and other stuff. Yeah. Hear all your cool stories. We'll have to do something like it again. We always, we still got ride the high country man and little big man. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Man. Yes. That's and right. Willie, and right. Willie boy, man. And Willie boy. Tell him Willie boy. And, here. That's and a Cole, good one too. I don't, I don't hold it quite as high esteem, but it's good. Yeah. And I've got on the docket. I've got cold in July. I've got it in the docket. I watched yeah. the, yes, man. I watched yeah. the preview and my wife and I just jaws dropped. And I said, yes, <laughs> we are watching it. Let me, let me tell you, Peter, the book's better. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and speaking Bonus. of books, you know, speak, speaking of books, you know, I, I actually told Chad, I wouldn't do this anymore because it's become a, a terrible custom of encouraging our listeners to send him stacks of books. <laughs> He does not want that. But no. you, were, you were talking about one day you've got these factories, and I, I bet you, I bet you, chatted except a few of those. And I know I would if you, because I'm looking for stacks of books, and uh, especially your books, you know, because you're you're good, and you're you're not just a good writer, and you've not just had a big influence on on one of the greatest friends that a man could ever even ask for. I mean, I mean that from my heart about Chad. We go back a long oh. way. We've seen we've che we've seen each other through some crazy things, you know. But but listening to you, the movie you saw tonight, yeah, we talked about tonight, right? Mm -hmm. But hearing you and and hearing others speak about you, hearing your wife talk about you, hearing your children talk about you, your friends talk about you, and then hearing you talk about you and them, it, it it's you're not just a great writer, you seem like a really fantastic man. You know, thanks. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just I, I only say that. I only say that. Not not to you know, it's just hurl flattery. I mean it's my favorite brew, but maybe not everybody's. But at the same time I mean it. You know, I, I I'm really sincerely grateful to have somebody like Chad that told me about your work because it may not be the exact same as Chad learning from his dad and getting that book, but it is a little bit. <laughs> So, and I, there was something somebody said in that documentary that they said, you know, every time I think I'm done and I've exhausted Lansdale somehow out of somewhere, there's another one. And, and I, I see that as an awesome opportunity. I'm happy to hear that because what I've experienced so far in the conversation we had and the kind of recommendations you have and stuff and your list, man, I love, I love it. And so I, I'm excited to learn more about you and your work. I'm really grateful you came on. Thank you. Yes. I appreciate you guys. And it's good to sort of almost meet you in person. <laughs> yeah. And uh, maybe, maybe that will happen in uh, the near future. You know, we'll actually get to see each other and, and have a face-to-face -face conversation. Yeah. And when, <laughs> when we're all over disease, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yes. The plague is gone. Yeah. All right. I'm going to tell you guys good night because my pit bull wants to go outside. Yeah. And he keeps bouncing on my leg going, hey, dad, I need to go out. So. Perfect. All right, Joe. Yeah. 
Yeah. All right. Thank night. you again. Great. Hey, good night. Thanks. Yep. Yo, what's going on, everybody? My name is Duncan, and I'm the host of the podcast Hash Time with Duncan. On this show, I tackle all the biggest sports stories between the hashes and beyond. If it's a big story, I'm going to talk about it and give you my opinion on it. Subscribe to my show wherever you get your podcast. All you have to do, search Hash Time with Duncan. And you can follow the show on Twitter at Hash Time with D. Peace.